Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. (coughs) As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Let's pray. O great God in heaven, we pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word to our souls this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I know that all of us have seen various individuals, most more often than not, able-bodied individuals standing with a sign at most intersections. Uh, and and usually there's someone that that's, it says, you know, I'm homeless or I'm in need or I'm traveling, and it will say, God bless you. Uh, I think we have to be very, very careful about how we pass out uh, those God bless yous. Uh, those are in particular uh, benediction uh, from uh, apostolic uh, and or pre-apostolic uh, the Aaronic blessing, uh, they are to be dict- they are t- to be handed down as representatives from God to God's people. Uh, they are to be, as it were, God uh, being invoked to provide blessing upon his people. Um, how you can do that for an unbeliever or an unbeliever can do that for you is beyond me. Uh, that's not possible. I think we make light of, well, God bless you. When as believers, we are invoking, calling for God's blessings upon one another. And we ought ought to make certain, uh, as much as we can, that we are saying this to another believer and that we are, in fact, asking God. Uh, We're not giving something. We're asking the Lord, Lord, would you bless this person? Um, But nonetheless, here is this individual. Here are these individuals that we typically will see and uh, it's it's interesting, the studies that I've often uh, heard. One of them was found in World Magazine. Marvin Alasky did a study in, in New York of the individuals who were standing on the street corners. And he found that the greatest uh, number of all the individuals who looked very, very rough standing on street corners were, in fact, grad school students. Grad school students who were holding up homeless signs that said that they would actually make more money, better money, if, in fact, Uh, they could collect on the side of the street and beg rather than serving their internships at their local uh, law firms. It's an interesting thing uh, uh, to examine who is who and what is a real need. And we know that in our present day, drug use and alcoholism are rampant. I've, I've given money and have seen individuals go directly and immediately to the liquor store. I think we have to be very, very careful, but... When was the last time that we have seen a person with a real need standing by, sitting by, 
uh, a grocery store sign, knowing that there was there was no social safety net, that there was no welfare involved, there was no WIC, there was no Medicaid, there was no anything that was a, a social safety net for their needs, but they were really and truly destitute, broken, blind, physically handicapped, standing in real solid need. Uh, occasionally I will have individuals who will call uh, our, my number, especially because it's publicly portrayed online, and they will say that they are in great and desperate need. And uh, obvious, uh, usually when, when, when I examine their stories and ask, well, can you tell me about your circumstances? There are usually significant um, uh, holes or inconsistencies in stories. Recently a woman called me and asked if she said that she and her children were homeless and and then began to talk about boarding school for her children and living in Maine versus Massachusetts and having a home there but not having the means here and going to Florida most of the year. And there was just so many inconsistencies. And it sounded very, very odd that eventually I just tried to share the Lord with her. She, realizing she wasn't going to get anything, brought the phone call to an end. It was a very different time in the time of Christ. If you would, especially during the Passover, and Passover is soon coming, uh, an individual would work their way up the 3,300 and some odd feet into the ascent all the way up to the Mount Jerusalem, where uh, there would be the Temple Mount itself within the city. And it would take many days of ascending up the hills, up through the mountains and the passes uh, on the roadsides, uh, you would see many who were ill and who would beg alms. There was no, there was no local uh, SSDI assistance. There was, no, there was no federal government that could be appealed to. Uh, people simply existed according to the charity of the day, which was the law of the land up until about perhaps maybe 50, 60, 70 years ago for America as well. Maybe a little further. Individuals would line the roadside, especially during the time of Passover and the weeks before. And as people would ascend and begin to make their way to Jerusalem, that 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 twenty uh, that that fifteen to twenty mile ascent up through the mountain passes, and especially as you came into the city and and came through one city after another, you would see people in 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 often deplorable condition by the roadside pleading for alms. Please help. And as you ascended and went to worship the Lord, it was a, an, it was an offering of, as it were, a, a fragrant offering to the Lord to give and to help. <clears throat> well, there was a man there, <clears throat> and he will cry out. He will cry out to the Lord for help. And here is this one man. He's Jesus is in Jer- Jericho. He's about twenty-four miles from Jerusalem. There's the foreboding context of verses 31 through 34, where Jesus has taken his disciples aside and he has said, look, the Son of Man is ascending up to Jerusalem. We are going, and all the things which are written about the Son of the Man in the prophets will be fulfilled. You will see this. It will be handed over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and mistreated, spat upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. And there is a, a significant statement in verse 34. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement 
was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. So as they thought about the Son of God and what would take place of Christ in as he makes his way into Jerusalem, they did not understand completely. They did not understand completely his role as Messiah. His role as the Son of God. His role as the Son of David. They did not completely comprehend these things. In the midst of all of this, we meet a blind man who's by the side of the road, who cannot see Jesus, who has never seen Jesus, who can only respond to the, with his hearing. He knows that there are crowds around him, and he hears something of this great commotion. And he says, who is passing by? It must be some great person. But they say, Jesus is passing by. In verse 37, they answer him as he asks, Who is this that is passing by? They say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Notice he does not call him Jesus of Nazareth. He does not say, in fact, that name at all. He cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. There's a very significant and very serious understanding behind those words. And so as we examine the significance of what this blind man who who can see Jesus by his eye of faith, here in this immediate context of blindness and of sight and of light and darkness and of lack of understanding and of hiddenness versus a, a blind man who sees completely who Jesus is, and even Jesus' own generation who introduces him as, well, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Here is one blind man who says, Jesus, you are the son of David. So we see five things in this passage this morning. The first of which is his condition. His condition. He is blind in Mark chapter 10. And he's identified as Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. He is he is a blind man. Matthew 20 verse it also identifies a significant situation where here he is, he's a blind man. But Matthew tells us that there are two blind men, which does not preclude the fact that there is one blind man which is mentioned, who is mentioned by Mark and Luke. Just because Matthew says, well, there are in fact two blind men, they're both healed, but one of whom spoke to Jesus and referred to him as the son of David. Uh, that's quite significant. Mark and Luke want to point out this particular man and his particular testimony, despite the healing of the two. <clears throat> He's the son of Timaeus, also recorded as a blind man. And so this seems to be second generation blindness. What We don't know the affliction. We don't know what it was, but it seems to have been a genetic condition that prevents him from seeing. He has seen nothing and he has most likely seen nothing all the days of his life. He has never seen, he has never observed with his eyes anything of the world in which he lived. And despite his physical blindness, this man knows his real need. He knows what he most needs. Whereas the disciples cannot really understand, things are certain things are hidden from him. And in fact, the crowds around Jesus say, he's Jesus of Nazareth. They can't see a thing. The religious authorities of Jesus' day really do not understand nor grasp who he is. 
They refused to refer to him as the Messiah or as the son of David. But this man sees and he knows who this is. Despite his blindness, he knows his greatest need. And when Jesus asks him ultimately what he needs, he says, thank you so much. He says, Lord, help me to see. I feel like a presidential contender who's just pulled aside for a moment to drink a little sip of water. Forgive me. Pardon me. (laughs) Thank you so much. I was wondering, Lord, what am I going to do? Um, So thank you. (coughs) Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks about, about blindness and about the signs of spiritual life in a person. And we can't fail to see the significance of this man's testimony Martin Lloyd-Jones says the first sign of spiritual life is to feel that you are dead, to feel our need of him ultimately. The natural man is always play-acting, always looking at himself, admiring himself. But one of the best tests of whether we are truly Christians or not is just this. Do I hate my natural self? Someone someone interacted with me this last week and said something to the effect, I, I don't like myself and... I'm very disappointed in myself, and it's not a direct and actual quote, but it's quite close. And I said, well, it seems to me that the most important thing for you is not necessarily whether or not you love yourself, but rather or not whether whether or not you love the Lord Jesus Christ more than yourself. Whether or not you really and truly do adore Jesus Christ, whether or not or more, whether it's whether or not you more or less. Adore and love the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything else this world could offer to you. So this is the man's condition, and he is crying out, and Jesus says, what can, what would you have of me? And he says, let me see. Well, we have seen his condition, and we see secondly his crying, crying, and cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He says this twice to him. He says it once before the crowd say anything to him. And he says it secondly in verse 39, after those have sternly told him to be quiet. In other words, he says, Lord, have mercy, Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they say, shh, be quiet. And there's a sternness. Stop this. Say no more. And yet he still says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In his desperation, you can hear his his cry, his plaintive cry. There is no other hope for him other than this, that Jesus would see his condition and help him. This phrase is found in Psalm 4. Have mercy on me in Psalm 6, in Psalm 41, in Psalm 51, in Psalm 109, in Psalm 123. It is found again and again on the various writers of the Psalms from David to Asaph to the sons of Korah, etc., etc. They, they, they cry out for mercy in the midst of great trials. They cry out for mercy in the great midst of great suffering. They cry out for mercy from their sins. They cry out for mercy from God's judgment. They cry out for mercy in the midst of great physical need. 
They cry out for mercy in the midst of great deprivation. But they cry out constantly, Lord, have mercy. How can Jesus, though, be David's son? Because he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's not just simply applying to to someone. He is applying to the, the Messiah of God. And he knows that. Son of David. It harkens all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 through 16, and God's promise to David in the Davidic covenant that one would come from David, eventually in his line, who would sit upon his throne and reign upon that throne forever. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that 2 Samuel 7 says. God has in the in the sight of his own people has fulfilled his promise to David. The son of David is used as a, as a name for Christ 17 times in the New Testament. It's used in Matthew 15, 22. It was used in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. It particularly refers to the fact that the person you stand, you see or don't see standing before you this morning in the text, the person Jesus, the eternal son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, The incarnate God, the Emmanuel, is in fact the perfect fulfillment of all God's messianic promises. He is the fulfillment of every messianic psalm. He is the fulfillment of every promise God made to David. And so David is physically, through Mary, through her lineage, David's son. And yet he is through God, his father, Supremely David's Lord. And so the Lord, David, David as king, could say, Lord, come, sit, and give his throne over to the Lord. And that's the particular quandary as it relates to the Psalms as they refer to how David could say to one greater than himself, and yet one who is ultimately through his loins, through his lineage, The Lord said to my Lord, come and sit at my right hand. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 refer to exactly how the Lord Jesus would be the fulfillment of this. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time forth and forevermore. Now that's not just and only what this blind man referred to David or, or to, to Jesus as. Jesus ultimately asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, Lord, I want to regain my sight. He has identified Jesus as the Messiah of God. He is no he is acknowledged by faith, even though he cannot see him. This, this, this person is the fulfillment of all that God had promised in the salvation and redemption of the people of God. But now he acknowledges his lordship, his divinity. He is acknowledging dominion and power and sovereignty and divinity. It's exactly what Jesus will one day say, and you will hear with your own ears, Revelation 22, 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you 
this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. John heard it, and one day you too will hear it. We see thirdly, censorship. We've referenced it already, but two different responses are given to this man. The first is quite negative. He calls out saying, they told him Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And can you imagine him? He's blind. He, he knows the crowds are around him. Perhaps Jesus is over there. And, or perhaps Jesus is over there. And we don't know. And he doesn't know. But he's crying out as loud as he possibly can. Because he is uncertain of exactly where he is. And he wants to be heard. He needs to be heard. He must be heard. And so he is screaming. It's, it's, it's almost an unseemly thing. And that's why the crowds look at him and say sternly, be quiet. This is unseemly. This is not proper. This is not right. He has more significant things to do. He has more significant people to see. There are others who have greater needs than yourself. And yet he keeps crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? It's quite discouraging, isn't it, when others tell us, Well, you know, maybe that's not appropriate for a person to do. To be so eager to cry out, so so fervent in prayer, I'm, I'm embarrassed by it. And uh, really, should we be praying over the issues of abortion? And uh, shouldn't we stay entirely and completely out of politics altogether? Well, we do as a church. We don't we don't speak politically unless we're having private conversations. If, if you want to talk about politics privately, you go right ahead. But in the church, no, we don't. Not really. But abortion is not a political issue. It's a moral issue. And there are many other moral issues that Christians should should not be quiet about at all. Nor should we in any way listen when someone says, be quiet, that's unseemly. Maybe we have a divine imperative to speak up for the unborn. Well, this man... He is unseemly because he knows his greatest need is Jesus Christ. He knows that his greatest need is to meet, to behold, and to speak in faith to, and be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. If he had listened, he might never have known healing. He might never have known the presence of Christ. It's kind of almost like Eli when she was hushing, he was hushing godly Hannah. You remember in, 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 in Samuel, in 1 Samuel when Hannah, the the wife of Elkanah, she has been barren and she desires to have a son and she promises to the Lord, I'll give you my son if you will only give me a child. And she is praying in such a way that uh, Eli thinks that she has been drinking. She has the spirit, but the spirit of God, nothing else. And he shushes her and he quiets her and accuses her of unseemly behavior. And she says, no. Let that not be said of your servant. Rather, I am crying out and pouring out my heart to God. It's a very foolish thing for a shepherd to say. But thankfully, he did get it right. 
I think he treated her wound lightly, but nonetheless, God provided for her. Thankfully, she continued to pray, and God provided Samuel. It's discouraging when others will tell us that, well, we really can't speak about such matters, and we really ought to have a neutral position about this or that moral issue, and uh, perhaps there are Uh, There are individuals who have said, look, you know, I just want to have a nice dinner at my home. Don't share the gospel with my with with my with my relatives. And uh, please don't say anything that would offend him or her. And of course, we ought not to be offensive and foolish. But we ought to be salt and light. Jesus did not reply as the crowds did. He gives him the opportunity for faith and asking what he desired. And he he makes his request. And in that request is an inherent expression of faith and asking great things of a great God. And so he says, Lord, he says, Lord, and he calls him Lord, believing in affirming his divinity, his sovereignty, his, his power, his omnipotence. Lord, I would have my sight. Lord, I would see. I want to regain my sight. When he makes his request, he is essentially saying, I believe in you and then I, I believe in your power to heal me. I believe you are God, God, infinite, eternal, unchanging, God, omnipotent, God, omniscient. God who heals, the God who cares, the God who is merciful. I think there's incumbent upon all of us the necessity when we pray that we would be inherently expressing our faith in our requests when we make them known unto God. We are to give the basis of our faith for why we are asking the Lord to do something and we should speak our faith into our requests. Lord, I know that you can do this. I know that if it is your will, you can change this person's heart. Lord, I know that you use the weak things of the world like me. And so would you give me courage and enable me to say the right things at the right time? Oh, Lord, I am filled with unfaithfulness and infidelity. But, Lord, you are faithful. Would you help me? Tell the Lord who you are. Tell him what your need is. Be bold with the Lord. Be frank. But speak faithfully of what you believe about your God when you pray. His faith is singled out and Jesus replies to him and says, Receive your sight, your faith has made you well. Now there are some who take that passage and delight in that passage to such an extent that they say, If you have enough faith, you can always be made well. Well, first of all, I think that ignores the basic biblical truth. That when Adam sinned, death entered the world. And the truth is that every single individual in this world will die. And to be honest, I see a lot of faith healers who have eyeglasses, some of whom have wheelchairs, others of whom still go to their doctor visits and still have their pre-cancer screenings. Why is that? Because they know in their heart of hearts that merely having enough faith is not ever going to heal anyone. Let me make that clear. Merely having enough faith in anything or in whatever is not necessarily going to heal anyone. You must have faith in God. God alone can heal. 
No longer do individuals have the ability to heal by the laying on of hands. That, that is an apostolic authority and gift of healing that ceased with the closure of the canon. Only God heals. Only God can heal. When the apostles healed, they healed by the power of God at work within them. There are no apostles remaining in the church together or, or, or anymore. The apostle Paul said, I am one untimely born. He knew himself to be the last of the apostles, as it were, one in an untimely way set apart for that ministry. But we do believe that God can heal, do we not? We do believe that the great physician can be appealed to in prayer, stating that, in fact, we believe in his power, if he is willing, that he himself can make well, and he does. He can and he does continually make his people well through medicinal means, through simply the the medicinal means of our own bodies, getting well after a period of time of sickness. God will also use chemotherapy and surgeries. And God, in fact, may simply hear and directly minister in the power of his own grace and the immense uh, the, the, the potency of his own tough physical touch and the power of his Holy Spirit may answer prayer and heal the individual who asks in faith and in subservience to his will, because it is not always God's will to heal, is it? He placed his son, his son willingly entered onto the cross and was not healed in that moment, in that condition, did he not? He died for the sake of human beings. For God's people, that he might redeem us from our sins. Eventually, every one of the apostles died, did they not? Many of them died, almost all of them, in horrific ways. If we would believe modern misconceptions about faith, these men had not enough faith at the end of their lives to pull themselves down off of their upside-down cross or, or to in some way shut out the fire from where they were being burned to death. I think there is a great deal of wickedness done by some within the professing church today who say that you need to get yourself out of that hospital bed by believing and having enough faith you can get yourself out of there. I believe that idea is unbiblical and foolish. We must have faith in God. We must have faith in a God who may heal if it is in accord with his will. And and a God who may not heal in any given moment, but who will always be with and hold the right hand of his people in the midst of even the greatest and worst suffering. And that in healing or, or in suffering, one way or the other, whether we live or we die, we will glorify the Lord God. And that all of it serves for his purposes. So Jesus says to him, your faith has made you well. Faith is singled out, and it's a strong encouragement to every Christian. If you have hope in God this morning, and if you're not a believer even, if you, if you are desperately searching for hope, there is, there is hope with the Lord. Let, let the guilty and the empty and the tempted and the hungry and the naked be of good comfort and come to the Lord. Let the, let the thief and, and the liar and, and the, <clears throat> and the abortionist and 
Let the murderer, let them all come to faith in Jesus Christ and receive grace and mercy to help and to save their souls. Let them believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let them believe that Jesus is the greater son of David. Let them believe that there is life in his name. Let them all own and acknowledge that he is the wonderful counselor and prince of peace. He is the, the eternal father. He is the everlasting God. But come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Fourthly, there is craving. Is There is craving. Jesus says, what would you have me to do for you? Lord, I want to regain my sight. You know, Jesus has mercy for all who cry for it. There is mercy for them, for, for anyone who would come and cry out for mercy. There's a recognition of that need that must come first, though. We must first cry out and say, Lord, help me. And if we are not crying out and saying, Lord, help me, then we ought not to be surprised that we have no help. What does James say? You have because you have not, not, you have not because you haven't asked. But if anyone has need, let him ask of the Lord. And so he has mercy for all who cry for it, especially for the outcasts and the blind, for those who are broken and wounded and who are mindful of their spiritual depravity. Recognition of our need must come first. If you are conscious of the fact that you are a sinner, thank God that you are conscious of that fact. And then go to Christ and ask him to help you in your need. He will most assuredly help you. crying out is vital Jesus never came again to Jericho in his ministry he never came again to Jericho this would be the last chance that this blind man had to be healed this was this blind man's last chance to be to meet his savior to profess faith in Jesus Christ and to be saved the truth is that you, this may be the last chance you ever hear, have to hear the gospel and the offer of God's grace. He may never come to you again. He is a merciful God. He is willing to cast out before his people and about before the world a continuing call to salvation. But there comes a day when that, with that, that, that offer is ultimately withdrawn. Christ comes again. Well, we are drawn before his throne as a steward as we depart this life. One way or the other, there will be a day when we have heard the gospel for the last time. We must cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. I don't know about you, but that's my most frequent prayer. When I pray and ask the Lord in regular daily devotions, Lord, have mercy on me. Isn't there involved in, in that simple statement, Lord, I can't claim anything. Lord, my faith isn't even strong enough to deserve anything. Lord, I don't have anything in my hands that I can bring to you. Every sacrifice, even if I were to return the entirety of all the days of my life to you, it, it cannot make up for what my great need of you is, and that is eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. And day to day, I need you every hour. I need you in the midst of struggle. I need you in the midst of 
of plenty. I need you in, uh, when I am in want. I need you when I am struggling with conflict. I need you, Lord. I need you because I have no one else. I don't want anything else but you. There's something, something humbling when we say, Lord, have mercy on me. And this man did, and, and no one could shut him up in doing it. As a herald of the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his word promises that when you cry out to him, when you cry out for him, when you plead with God to give you more of him, with faith and despairing of all other hope, he will come with healing and with wholeness, and he will help. Alec Motier in this passage says, There is no sorrow and joy in life that shouldn't be deflected at once, upwards and into the very presence of God. There's no experience that comes into our experience which God does not intend for his people's upbuilding. And so if you are spiritually blind this morning, if you are struggling with a sense of yourself, and if you think, I don't even know who I am. I don't know what my purpose in life is. I don't know where to go. I don't know what decision to make next week over a decision that is coming up upon me. I don't know what you have for me in my future. I don't know what you want out of me in the next 20 years of my life. I don't know what you want me to do about this one particular thing or in this one particular decision or in this one particular relationship. Can't we at least? Isn't there a a boldness and, 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 and a fullness when we can simply say, Lord, help me. Lord, have mercy on me. The Lord knows what you need. The Lord knows when we say such things sincerely that we are not being short-lipped, but rather we are, we are acknowledging real need. We're coming to an end of ourselves in our own oratory and saying, Lord, I can't say anything more about it. I can only say, Lord, help me. And so that brings us finally and fully, fifthly, to calling. This man cries out and the Lord Jesus says, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. It seems to me that there are two things for us to do as Christians when we read such stories. When we experience God's mercy upon our lives, when indeed, when we cry out and say, Lord, help me, and the Lord does. Don't you know that that, 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 that lays upon us an imperative if God helps us when we cry out and ask him for that help, if he helps us even when we haven't asked for that help, there is something that we are now compelled to do. We are to pray and we are to praise. Really, this compels us to prayer. Humble, Bible-reflecting prayer, promise-believing prayer, plaintive prayer, crying prayer, when especially we are emotional with the Lord. When I'm cold with the Lord, it speaks to the coldness of my own heart. But when I stop what I'm doing 
and I repent over my repentance and over my prayers and I ask the Lord to help me and then I say just, Lord, help me, have mercy on me. Oh, it's then that I find my spirit is in the right place. And prayer now means something more to me than it did. We need to pray biblically, humbly, promise-believing prayers, and, and to make our cry and our plaintive cries to the Lord made known. If, if you live in an apartment and your neighbors don't occasionally hear, Lord, help me, then God help you. If your children don't hear you in your own house, occasionally saying it loud enough for them to hear, Lord, help me. And dear friends, you need to pray a little bit more fervently. I I don't think fervency is only loudness, but, but shouldn't we be fervent? And shouldn't we pray audibly? And shouldn't we pray in such a way that it... It shows God, don't we, as we are praying, isn't God our audience? And, and shouldn't, we, shouldn't we show the Lord our urgency in prayer? We should persevere in prayer, recognizing that our great need is for Him. Here was a blind, here was a blind man, and, and he kept, just kept crying out, Lord, Lord, have mercy on me, Son of David. Lord, have mercy on me. We need to recognize our need for him, ultimately of him. I know that there are many things in our heart of hearts that we feel that we really, really, really need right now. But dear friend, your greatest need is for him. To know him, to live in him, to be bound up in stronger union with him, to know that he holds you in his right hand, to to be encouraged in him, comforted by him. Need more and more of him evident in your life. You need to be more and more conformed to his image. I'll give Charles Spurgeon, wonderful Baptist preacher, the last word here in this sermon this morning. And in conclusion, let me beseech you to go home to your room. And there, kneeling by your bedside, by faith, picture the Savior saying to you, What do you want me to do for you? Fall on your knees and without hesitation, tell him all. Tell him you are guilty and you desire that he would pardon you. Confess your sins. Keep none of them back. Say, Lord, I implore you, pardon my drunkenness, my profanity, or whatever it may be that you've been guilty of. And then still imagine you hear him, whatever saying, what do you want me to do for you? Tell him, Lord, I would be kept from all those sins in the future. I shall not be content with being pardoned. I want to be renewed. Tell him you have a hard heart and ask him to soften it. Tell him you have blind eyes and that you can't see your interest in Christ. Ask him to open your heart. Confess before him you are full of iniquity and prone to wander. Ask him to take your things of the earth no more. Ask him to take your heart and wash it and set it on things above and prevent it from being found on the things of the earth. Tell it out plainly. Make a frank and full confession in his presence. And what if it should happen, my dear hearer, that at this very day while you're in your room, Christ would give you a a touch of grace. Put your sins away. Say to your soul and give you the joy to know that you are now a child of God and now an heir of heaven. Imitate the blind man in the explicitness and straightforwardness of his confession and his request.
Lord, I want to see. Let's be bold with the Lord. This is what converted people do. We praise God. The confession says, or the catechism out of the confession says, what is the chief end of man? The answer is given. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The people's response in this passage in verse 43, they gave praise to God. Do you, is praise of God a regular part of your dialogue with the Lord? Do you praise him in prayer? Do you praise God to one another when you are rejoicing after worship over a cup of coffee? Do you have reason for praising God? Do you speak of praising God with your spouse, with your children, with your neighbors and networkers and co-workers and all of the above? God's people praise the Lord. We praise the Lord because the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is altogether lovely. He is beautiful. All the angels of the Lord can't stop singing before his presence. All the holy ones above proclaim the excellence of the one. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is the one who gives us joy. He is our chief delight. He is our first and foremost love. He loves the church. He is the shepherd of the church. He is the desire of all the nations. He is the desire of our soul. He is our life. He is our soul. And because of him, all things exist. Let us therefore praise God continually.